You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you woke up this morning and you thought to yourself, what I really want to do at church today is go through, verse by verse, one of the hardest and most difficult passages in the New Testament. I'd like to welcome you to church I got into these passages because these verses because the last three verses are three of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I've never preached on them before, and so I, I wanted to take today and preach on them because uh, they're, they're really personally helpful for me. Uh, and as I got into the passage, I realized 2 Corinthians 3 is a very difficult passage, very difficult to understand, because Paul uses a lot of Old Testament ideas and interjects them and does some things, and it's, it's, just, it's just hard. So I had, I had options here. I could, I could stay with 2 Corinthians 3, or I could go to another passage that's easier and less demanding, and I, that really wasn't an option. I was 100% committed to this one, um, but I, I just want to let you know that after today, you will have earned your nap today or you will just nap right on through it. Either one, I don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, but if, see, the, the, the thing though, I, the reason why I wanted to do these verses in this passage is, ironically, as difficult as it is, it actually answers one of the most um, simple and, and important and bedrock questions in our Christian faith. See, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God created all of the world. He created the, just the created order. And then he looks at man and he creates Adam and Eve. And he, he looks at them and he says something to them that is exclusive to humans. That is exclusive to just, just Adam and Eve that he doesn't say to the rest of the created order. So he looks at Adam and Eve and Genesis 2 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what God does is he looks at man and says, you are going to primarily the reason you exist is to is to be my image bearers and what that means is is to reflect who God is into the world that's something that's exclusive to human beings and so like I think of the just the idea of a mirror that a mirror reflects something and so just in the same way that we we reflect the character and the person of God into the world in fact the uh, the the word image is related in the Hebrew to the word idol which we never associate idol with anything good because it's idolatry and it's bad, but in idol in its most basic definition, it simply means to take the invisible and make it visible. That's essentially what it means to be image bearers, that, that you and I, the essence of your existence is to be lived in light of who God is and what God does and how God thinks. That's our call as image bearers. And so that's, that's what God said to humans in Genesis chapter 2. And then Genesis 3 happened and you get Eve and Adam tempted by Satan, the serpent, and the fall happened. And in that moment, what happened is the mirror that's our image that was supposed to reflect God, that's supposed to take the invisible God and all of his character and make him known that mirror was shattered into a billion pieces so that now we no longer reflect God. Um, Like all over the Old Testament, it's going to say that man no longer did what was fitting in the eyes of the Lord, but they turned inward and did as they sought fit. And so now we've got an image problem now. We have an image crisis where it's been disfigured, it's been shattered, it's been deformed. So the question is, is how do we or how does God piece that mirror back together so that you and I today as Christians can bear the image of God in a fallen world? That's the question. It's a very simple bedrock question. How, how do we display the image of God in today's world even though we're fallen? And, and here's the thing. While nobody would argue that there's a problem with humans, I mean, nobody argues with the fact that there is definitely a problem with you. You don't have to be a Christian to know that there's something 
bad about human beings, where nobody would argue with that. Everyone seems, seems to disagree with what the solution is to the problem. So no one argues that there's problems with humans. You just have to live for a certain period of time before you realize there's a problem. But the problem is, is we don't agree on what the solution is. So I want to I press on a certain solution that you hear all the time, that I hear all the time, because it's part of the Western culture that we live in. And that is like the Western culture sees humans, individuals, as autonomous individuals that are capable in and of themselves to looking inward for power to fix the sort of fallenness image problem. And so the Western culture is going to to send a message to all of us that you have in and of yourself the the power and the ability to overcome the fallenness of humanity. That's that's a message that's that's sent through a variety of different means and methods, but it's sent nonetheless to all of us that we can just, if we just love ourselves more, if we can think better thoughts about ourselves, if we can accept of ourselves more, that will kind of fix our image problem. And I'll just, I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, in, in Newsweek, which is a secular newspaper company, they did a, re, a research sort of report. They, they, they had this question that they tried to answer. What is the church in America teaching? That was what they wanted to do a, a research report on. And this was, this was their conclusion after their report. Said this, that churches have developed a pick-and-choose Christianity. Christianity in which individuals take what they want and pass over what does not fit their spiritual goals. What many have left behind is a pervasive view of sin. Then it goes on to say, disguised in the secular language of psychotherapy, the search for the sacred has turned sharply inward, a private quest. The goal over the last 40 years has been variously described as peace of mind, higher conscience, personal transformation, or in its most banal incarnation, self-esteem. And here's the thing. I'm just going to be clean with you. I'm just going to come clean. I'm going to try to hurt your self-esteem feelings this morning because it is not about your self-esteem. So that's what we're going to try to do. It's not about you feeling better about yourself or you looking inward to find power in yourself. I'll give you another example. This, this will, you'll appreciate this example. A girl named Marsha Witten is a non-Christian sociologist today. And she did a report. This is what she did. She listened to almost 50 sermons by either a Southern Baptist preacher or a Presbyterian preacher, which are two of the most conservative denominations in America, if not the two most conservative. And and she wanted to try to answer this question. What is the central meaning that's being taught in these sermons? The the two sermons, or the sermon topic was on the parable of the prodigal son, which is what we just got done doing. And so she did this. She listened to almost 50 sermons, Parable of the Prodigal Son, to try to understand what is the essence of, of what are pastors teaching, what are people teaching, and this was what she concluded. After listening to these sermons, it seems that the key to salvation thus lies within the self. The charge to the individual person is to listen and to be receptive to this inner voice. God and faith seem to have become psychologized as a kind of therapy that would help men and women deal with the demands of the real world. Conversion, therefore, is basically self-fulfillment. It's all about self. It looks inward. I don't know how she got that from the parable of the prodigal son or how pastors get that, but it happens. I'll give you another example. Really popular pastor. Real popular pastor. Really popular. Lots and lots of people go to his church. And I'm not going to bash—I don't, I don't bash pastors— but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bash this guy. This guy's going to get bashed. 
he wrote this in one of his books, a direct quote. When we believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, right there, we're gold. We're right on the money. Biblical gold. When we believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, and believe in ourselves, that's when our faith comes alive. When we believe that we have what it takes, we focus on all of our possibilities. I'm not going to give you any names, but if you want your best life now, You can buy his book literally anywhere because it's everywhere. I was at Walgreens the other day and I was checking out. It's like the Coke machine, the candy area, and a rack of his book sitting right there. So another example, last example, um, this is by a, a Southern Baptist pastor. He quoted this poem in a sermon. He said, when you get what you want in your struggle for wealth and the world makes you king for a day, then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that guy has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the guy staring back from the glass. That's that guy saying. He's saying it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much what God thinks about you. It doesn't matter so much what others think about you. What primarily matters is what you think about yourself. You can just love yourself more, accept of yourself more, think better thoughts about yourself. That's the key that unlocks the solution to this sort of humanity image problem. The problem with that is you cannot look into yourself for, to overcome the problem because you yourself are the problem. That's the big problem with it. We're a bunch of walking problems. So we, welcome to church, by the way. <laughs> so you can't look inward to yourself for the solution if we ourselves are the problem. So we got to ask this question. What does the Bible say is a solution to our broken, disfigured image? What does God say? What does God do for us? What we're going to find is that we on our own are incapable of solving this image problem of picking up the pieces and repairing our image. What we're going to see is that God does everything. And so with that, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians 3, just look at the first part of verse 12. Since we have such a hope. Okay, we've got to stop there because that's, that's pulling back on what Paul just previously got done describing in the verses leading up to verse 12. And so we've got, to, we've got to ask ourselves, what was Paul just doing? And what he was just doing in the verses leading up to verse 12 is Paul was doing this. It's complex and it's good and it's fun. It's going to be awesome. He was juxtaposing the ministry of the law with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he was juxtaposing the ministry of the Old Covenant with the ministry of the New Covenant. That word, your word in your Bible, Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, that word Testament actually means covenant. So simply put, as God was juxtaposing what was happening in the Old Testament with what is now happening in the New Testament. That's what Paul just got done doing. And so we need to understand the ministry of the law and the ministry of the Spirit. Now I'm going to sort of just kind of sum this up real quickly, and we'll start with the ministry of the law. What is the law? What are we talking about there? Are we talking about the state government? Talking about the federal government? What are we talking about? The law, by definition, the Old Testament law, is God's moral code for how to live life. It specifically refers to, in 2 Corinthians 3, to the Ten Commandments, but more generally refers to any moral thing that comes out of God's mouth, any moral commandment that comes out of God's mouth that, is, that bears weight on us today. 
So when Jesus says, you've heard it said in your heart that you're not supposed to murder, but I say, if you have hatred in your heart, it's the same sin. So now having a hate-filled heart, that's part of God's moral code. It's part of God's law. And so Jesus also said that you've heard it said, um, you shall not commit adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, that's the same sin. So now lust becomes part of God's moral code, his law. That's what the law is. And you might be like, what is the purpose of the law? Why do we have the law? Why did God give us moral obligations and rules? Why did he do that? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. There are three reasons why God gives us the moral law. The first reason, we don't talk about this enough. The first reason that God gives us a moral law to live by is to show the character of God. See, what we can't do, we can't see God's rules for your life as just arbitrary. And by the way, we're going to, this isn't legalism. We're going to get there. Just hold on for a second here. It's not, I'm not talking law. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out in a minute. But God's rules, we can't see God's rules and regulations as isolated, arbitrary rules that just sort of stand on their own. God just, he doesn't just say, do this because you're supposed to do this. We've got to see God's rules and regulations and how he's called us to live as intricately and intrinsically connected to the character of God. So when God says, do this, he's saying, do this because this is how I do things. When God says, don't do that, abstain from that, he's saying that because he himself does not do that. And so God's rules are just a reflection of the character of God. That's just showing God's character. Here's how holy I am, the law. That's what he's saying. And so that leads us to the second reason why we get the law. It's a guide for us as image bearers in how to live. This is all over the Bible. And so I'll just give you a couple of examples here. Like we're commanded to be holy in 1 Peter 1.16 because God is holy. So it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's God saying, we're called to be holy. You're called to be holy. I'm called to be holy. That's the law because God himself is holy. It's intricately and it's woven together with the character of God. Now you can see this is important for us as his image bearers to understand. So God's in heaven and says, I'm going to make you guys my image bearers. I'm going to make humans my image bearers. And then it's important for God to say, I need to explain exactly what that means. So the law serves as a guide for us as we live life to understand how God is. I'll give you a couple more examples. We are commanded to tell the truth, not to bear false witness against others in Ephesians 4.25 and Exodus 20.16, because God is a God of truth and is trustworthy in Psalms 36.5. And so he says, don't lie. That's the law. That's the rule because God doesn't lie. He says, be trustworthy. Tell the truth because God is a perfect picture of what truth is. He's the embodiment of truth. I'll give you another example. This is a, this is a good one. It, we're called to be sexually pure or just pure in general because purity is a reflection of God himself. See, sexual morality, it's not just an arbitrary rule that stands here that's disconnected from the character of God. God says, I want you to be sexually pure because that's how I am. So as image bearers, you reflect me when you're sexually pure, when you're, yeah, when you're sexually pure. So it's not just an arbitrary rule that stands right here, disconnected from the character of God. The obvious one is, is love. We're called to love others. We're called to be kind to others. We're called to treat others with kindness because why? 
The whole book of 1 John pretty much is about the fact that God is love, that God has treated you kindly, that God has treated us kindly. So as a reflection of that, we love other people. So that's another reason why we get the law of God. It's a, it guides us in how we live. The third reason why we have God's law is because it produces inside of us, it shows us that we need a redeemer. That's the nice way to say it. The mean way to say it is it shows you that you are a spiritual failure. That's the mean way to say it. This is the truth though, right? And this is a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, Rodney did a sermon all about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that? It was, a, it was a hurtful, hurtful sermon. It was about how your righteousness is never going to be good enough for God, ever. Even on your best day. So you just hammered away at that idea. Just hammered away, hammered away. What we're about to do, we're going to take our hammers, we're going to flip them around, we're going to wedge out the nail a little bit, we're going to hammer a little bit, we're going to hammer. Because it's important for us to understand that even on our best day, just a reminder that you cannot ever perform your way into salvation for God. That one of the purposes of the law is for us to see God's holiness and then for us to look at ourselves and to see that we are failures of that law. That even on the day that you are doing ministry, on the day that you're sharing the gospel, on the day that you're taking your kids to church and you're doing ministry and volunteering, on those days even your righteous deeds are not good enough for God. You can perform your way in, I mean, you can perform for bosses, for coaches, for teachers, for really anybody around you, but you cannot perform your way for God. You just can't do it. So this is another reason why God gives us the law. This is what Paul says in Romans. How would I know that I'm a sinner if I didn't know that the, if I didn't know that the law did not exist to show me that? It reveals to us that we need something. So this should shake us out of self-confidence in a world and in a culture that sees human beings as autonomous individuals with the power and capacity in themselves to do anything they want, the gospel, the Bible is going to say, you next to a holy God, next to God's law, are fundamentally incapable of saving yourself, period. So what we need is the gospel. What we need is the ministry of the Spirit. So let's talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have to talk about Jesus because it starts with Jesus. So what Jesus did, number one, is that he atoned for your failure in keeping the law. And you might be like, well, Dan, I haven't, I haven't broken every one of God's laws. I've only, you know, I haven't like committed adultery or I haven't murdered somebody. James 2 is going to say that if you've broken one of God's law one time in your life, you're guilty of the entire law. So that should help us see that in the grand scheme of things, we really do need Jesus to atone for all of our failures, which are a lot. And so what Jesus does is he dies on the cross, a wrath-absorbing death for your failure to live up to the law. And then he also lives a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the law on your behalf so that he could give you a new nature. That's pretty unbelievable. That Jesus, and we've got to see both here because both are, are equally important. We can't just exalt the death and crucifixion of Jesus, although it's important. We've got to see that Jesus is the only human being in the history of the world that has perfectly lived up to the demands of God's law. He, without, he is the perfect example for us. So he did that on your behalf so that he could then transfer his new nature into you. So that's the first two things about the ministry of the Spirit. It begins with Jesus' death and his life so that, number three, the Holy Spirit could come inside of us 
and empower us to live out the law. Now, remember when I said it's going to be deep today? We are now here. We've arrived. This is very, very important part of the, part of the sermon is right now. Two, there's two things that the Holy Spirit does for us present day operating inside of us. Two things. Let's look at Philippians. I'll read a verse real fast here. Philippians 2.13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's two things that the Holy Spirit now does inside. Now you've got to get the, you've got to get the law, the progression here. You're a sinner. Jesus is perfect. Died on the cross to absorb your sinful lawlessness. Gives you his nature gives you the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit does two things. It changes your desires to want what God wants now, and it actually empowers you. It works in you to actually carry out what you desire, right? Like, I know, like, some of you in here, you came to, you came to salvation later in life, like when you were an adult, and you can distinctly remember a time in your life where you did not desire obedience to God and God's law wasn't even a thought in your brain, but then something happened to you. Jesus revealed himself to you and you were consumed in in awe of who Jesus was and what the gospel is. And then from there, you had a desire to be obedient to God. How do you explain something like that? You explain something like that because the Holy Spirit changes desires. It conforms our desires to God. And then it empowers us to actually live out the desire relatively because we're still failures. It's a progression. This is the Christian life now. So now the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit's present day operating inside of us to do two things. Change our desires to to long for God, to want the law, to, to see the law as good because it's a reflection of God and then actually empowers us over a period of time to live out the law. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the umbrella by which 12 through 18, the rest of the passage is under, that we are now under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And with that, Paul is going to move to verses 12 through 18, and he's going to apply that for us. He's going to say, here's what that means now. Now that you have the Spirit inside of you, sins have been atoned for, Jesus' nature has been given to you, Holy Spirit indwells you, operating inside of you, working these things inside of you. Here's what that means Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, since we're under the ministry of the Spirit, since all of that has happened, we are very bold. I'm going to have you circle words this morning. This is a circle word. Great word right here, bold. This idea, it means sort of openness, that God has made himself open to us so that we can boldly enter into fellowship with God. There's nothing that separates us from God anymore. There's nothing that keeps us from pursuing God, from entering into fellowship with God. We can boldly pursue God now because of everything that Jesus did for us and because the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. We can now boldly and passionately and wholeheartedly walk with and commune with and know God. That's pretty awesome. And so then Paul is like, well, I just told them they need to be bold. And then, but his, I think this is what he said. This is kind of just me making this up. But he basically said, I, I want to help my readers understand exactly what that means by giving them an analogy from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus to help them sort of understand how this actually looks. And so he, he gives us an analogy. Let's look at verse 13. 
Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Okay, so let's let's talk about what's going on here. So Paul brings an Old Testament passage and says, here's what it's not like anymore. And here's what happened in Exodus 34. It's where the passage is. What happened is Moses, here's Israel right here. And here is what's called the tent of meeting right here. And this is where God's relational presence dwelt. And so what, what would happen is Moses would go into this tent of meeting and he would commune with God. It says like a friend communicates with a friend. And so as Moses was communicating with God and fellowshipping with God and being in the presence of God, Exodus 34 reads that his face was physically transformed and was shining. It was glowing. The shining face of Moses, Exodus 34. So then Moses would walk out of the tent with a shining face. It's like the glory of God was radiating off of his face. So he got back out to the the people of Israel and Israel could not gaze at Moses's face, the glory coming off of Moses's face because, put our thinking caps on, at this point in redemptive history, Israel's sins had not been atoned for yet. The principle is that no sinner can see the glory of God. That's the principle. No sinner can see the holiness of God. So Moses would come out and he had to put a veil over his face because Israel could not see the glory of God, the presence of God coming off of Moses' face. What Paul is saying is it's not like that anymore. That we're not like Israel that has something keeping us from God. That there's no veil that lies between us and the presence of God that we can fully and boldly enter into fellowship with God, I think we'll never understand how awesome this is unless we see how this is sort of developed in the Bible. So we're going to go on a quick journey for a second. If you've got a Bible, flip over to John chapter 1, and I'll just, I want to explain something while you're flipping, um, something that's a really cool thing in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. So for the rest of Moses gets done in Exodus 34, for the rest of the book of Exodus, God outlines to the people of Israel how to build this tabernacle thing. And the tabernacle is where, you got to follow me here, this is really cool. you got to follow me because this is awesome. The tabernacle is where God's relational presence would dwell with the people of Israel. So in the Old Testament, Israel was doing their thing, wandering through the wilderness, and God was dwelling with them in this thing called the tabernacle. It's where God's presence was. Here's the thing with the tabernacle. Only one time a year could only one person enter into the presence of God. It's called the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, I think. It's called the Day of Atonement. Only after a long ceremonial process of cleansing could one person, one time a year, enter into fellowship with God, relational presence of God. It's pretty fascinating. Now, I want to I make a distinction real quick of something really important. There is a difference in God's general presence that the God is generally present everywhere— the word that you're probably familiar with is omnipresence, that he's generally present everywhere, and God's relational, unique presence with his people. There's a difference there. David says, I go up to the mountain and you're there. I go down to Sheol, the grave, and you're there. You're everywhere. That's an omnipresence. Gen- God's everywhere. You're always, all, God's all, he's just everywhere. But God is relationally present, uniquely relationally near to his people. 
In the Old Testament, this relational presence was a cloud that would come down and then it would dwell in the tabernacle. That's where God's presence was. And it was only one person could experience it one time a year. And so that's, that's what God's relational presence is. I'll give you a quick analogy. My wife is sitting right over there. Hey, yeah. Trisha and I are this far apart right now. We're this far in proximity. There are other people in and around here that are closer to Trisha in proximity. They are nearer to her in proximity than I am. But I would say that of everybody in here, I'm the, the closest and the nearest to Trisha relationally. It doesn't matter how far apart we are, I still know her in a way that nobody else does. At least I hope so. <laughs> I will dominate you if I have to. <laughs> And if you're bigger than me, I will find a stick or a weapon or something. <laughs> Whatever it takes, right? Did I score some points right there? Is that a good one? Right. Sometimes I say something and I'm like, oh dang, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> Chalk that up on the wind column, I think. And so um, this is the idea, though. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> the idea is God's relationally near He has relational presence. It's different than his general presence. And then we get this really cool verse in John chapter 1. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh. This is the single greatest act in history up until this point. This is the infinite, eternal, omnipotent God of the universe making himself a man but not ceasing to be God, which is awesome. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt, we don't have a word in our English to properly understand what dwelt means. If you translated it literally, we would translate it, and he tabernacled among us. We don't have that word in the English. That's literally what it means that God tabernacled, that Jesus tabernacled among us. So now the relational presence of God Got to see this here, made its way from the tabernacle and then went out and indwelt Jesus. And so now Jesus was dwelling among us, that he was rubbing shoulders with humans now, with sinners. God was taking one step towards humanity. So we don't take steps to God. God has to take steps to us. So this is Jesus coming out of the tabernacle, embodying the presence of God, dwelling among us. And this Jesus, like we had already talked about, um, you can go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians 3, which is the next passage we'll be in. But this Jesus, like we already talked about, went to the cross and died a wrath-absorbing death for your lawlessness and lived a perfectly obedient life for you, completely fulfilling the law, so that he could give you the Holy Spirit which is what we get in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit, what? Dwells in you. That's the same way that he now tabernacles in you. That God's relational presence that was isolated to everybody except for one person one time a year after a huge process of ceremonial cleansing went out into Jesus Christ and then Jesus went onto the cross to die for your sins so that then he could give you the Holy Spirit and now God's relational presence can dwell with you. The fact is is that God is a whole lot nearer to you than you can even imagine, which is pretty unbelievable that God is nearer to you than you can even imagine. 
So because of that, we can enter boldly into God's presence. We can know God. We can walk with God. There's nothing that separates us, us and God. The veil has been removed. And now we can fully pursue God. We have the presence of God living inside of us. Sins have been dealt with on the cross. New nature, Jesus' nature has been granted to us. And now the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and does two things. It changes desires and it gives us the ability to live out our new desires. That's what happens. Let's, look, let's keep going in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Let's look at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This is, a, this is just another way of saying everything we'd already said. That you, you see yourself, and then you see God's law, and then you see, uh-oh, I'm not ever going to live anywhere near to God's expectation. So you don't turn inward to yourself. You look to Jesus, and you trust Jesus for all that he's done for us. And in that moment, the veil has been removed. The veil is just gets this is one of my favorite verses. Turn to God, and the veil is removed. Then we can enter into fellowship with God, and love God, and know God. Then it goes on, it, it describes all of this. Paul describes it as Christian freedom. Let's look at verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let me ask you something. Are you free to do what you want now? Answer is, sort of. <laughs> In a sense, yes, you are now free to do whatever you want. Let's follow the thought here. Let's follow the train of thought here. So if God puts the Holy Spirit inside of you and operates new desires inside of you and changes your desires to God's desires and releases you from the, from the curse of the law, that then frees us to pursue obedience to the law. And in that sense, that's what Christian freedom is, that we're freed from the curse of the law to freely pursue obedience to the law. It's a hard thing to understand because there's nothing like it in our world, nothing like it. Like I wish, on a personal level, I almost, I almost didn't do this passage because this is hard to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But here's the thing. It would be easy for me to get up here and, and preach a legalistic sermon. Here are four things that you need to do or five things to be a Christian or something like that's what we do for salvation. This is how we do things. Just a legalistic sort of sermon. That'd take like five minutes. That's no fun. Or it would be easy for me to get up here and say, you know what? The law, we're Christians now. We've got grace. So now we can literally do anything we want. Be easy for me to say, no law. We don't need the law at all. We don't need God's holy law at all. So those two extremes are easy to understand. But the gospel, part of the fact that it's so beautiful and glorious that it stands differently from both of those extremes in a completely unique way. Because there is relevant, there is a relevant, the law is relevant for your life today. That God's holy law is relevant. That God has placed the Spirit inside of us, Holy Spirit inside, ministry of the Spirit, changes our desires to look at God's law and want to be obedient and want to be like God. And by the way, being God's image bearer and being obedient to God's law are the same exact thing. So it's not legalism because you're not doing that to earn salvation. And it's not anti-law. It's not like we throw the law away because we've got grace. Let's just do whatever we want. It's like the the gospel is awesome in that it's different from every other system of religion. So I wanted, to, I wanted to do complex stuff and multifaceted stuff today because I wanted to hold out the gospel and say it's different than everything. 
It's not Mormonism. It's not Jehovah's Witnessism. It's not legalism. It's not Islam. It's not any of that. And it's not just do whatever you want. It's now God saves us, gives us his spirit, executes new desires inside of us progressively over the period of time. And now we look at the long, I want to be obedient. It changes our desires. That's what happens. Like I was nine when I got saved. You think I could describe Christian freedom when I was nine? I just wanted to play outside when I was nine. That's all I wanted to do. And we took kids to camp early in August, and we had first graders come to know Jesus. I mean, we had a first grader. I mean, you don't, what I love about the gospel is it's simple enough for a child to get saved, but multifaceted enough for us to spend a lifetime studying, never fully wrap our heads around. It's awesome. It stands, it stands uniquely different than everything else. Yeah. So that's Christian freedom, that we're freed from the curse of the law to then, by the power of the Spirit, freely pursue the law, to be as image bearers. Yeah. And the climax to this whole passage is verse 18. It's a really great passage. Great, these, these three, 16, 17, 18, great verses to know, great verses to underline, great verses to memorize. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's two big words here, two big underline words, two big circle words. The first is beholding. And the second is the verb are being transformed. There's something that is embedded in the Greek that the English sort of doesn't pick up on all the way. I had a guy come up to me a couple of days ago and or a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how much he liked the preaching at Stonegate, and he was talking about Rodney and, and how we don't use Greek stuff. And that guy's not going to say thank you to me today, to say the least. And so, because we, there actually is something in here that we miss completely. And so, I'll just take the two words and go one at a time here, because they're both really important. This answers the question, by the way. This is the answer to our questions. How do we fix, how does the image that was broken and shattered get pieced back together so that today we as Christians can be in the image of God, bear God's image to the world? And the first is by beholding God. Beholding simply means to contemplate, to gaze at, to think deeply on, to dwell on. That's what beholding means. To look up, you don't look inward at yourself, you look upward to Jesus. Follow the lot because you can now. Because your sins have been paid for, because Jesus lived a perfect life, the Holy Spirit empowered, now you actually have the capacity inside of you to worship God, to know God, to walk with God, to behold God. And that, that word is, is a, it's about to be nerdy, about to get nerdy. It's a, it's a participle, a present-day participle, which means it's a present, continuous action that it happens today and it continues to happen. And that verb, are being transformed, is a present finite verb in the Greek. So that means that that happens present day and it continues to happen so that as we look to God and behold God, understand God, meditate on God, the weight and the character of who God is begins to sink down into our soul and transforms our life into his image. That's it. So that as we look at God, gaze at God, study God, 2 Corinthians 4 is going to say that God has shown himself in our hearts through the face of Jesus Christ. So it's the same, it's the same thing. 
That as we look to Jesus and as we see Jesus, understand Jesus and worship Jesus and know Jesus, commune with Jesus, who he is, his law and his attributes and his character begin to sink down on our soul and that weight hits us and we're transformed into his image. Seems like Christianity is less about trying hard to keep the law and more about worshiping your way through life. So that at the end of the day, you become like what you behold. That's it. You become like what you behold. I grew up in the 1990s, which means I was under the influence of the great Michael Jordan. Which, by the way, this is an important part of the sermon. Everyone talks about who's better, Kobe or LeBron, and it doesn't matter because Michael is the best. It doesn't matter. It's like, who's better, Paul or David? Well, Jesus is the best, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) I don't care who's better because Michael is the best, period. As a kid, I loved playing basketball. I grew up playing basketball. That was, you know, I loved from an early age playing basketball. And um, I I begin to, looking back now, I can see that every time I signed up for Little League, I always wore number 23. I always wore number, or number 45, depending on the year, right? So I I know that as a kid, I I began to wear Michael Jordan attire. I began to get his jerseys and his tennis shoes. And I had Chicago Bulls attire. And I watched Chicago Bull games. And I bought you know, Michael Jordan Wheaties, and I, I bought Michael Jordan Cologne, which is kind of creepy, and I bought <laughs> other things that, that had to do with Michael Jordan, and my mom, you know, it wasn't like, like, it, it wasn't, when my mom took me to the store to buy shoes, to buy Michael Jordan shoes, it wasn't like begrudging. It wasn't hard for me to do. I didn't have to work up the appetite to do that. I just, I loved it. It was out of joy. I wanted to, wanted to, wanted to be like Mike, right? And that's how, that's how I did in the 1990s. What was happening there? As I was beholding the glory of Michael Jordan, I was being transformed into the image of Michael Jordan, kind of, sort of, a little bit different. You get the analogy, though. I'm not Michael Jordan today. I'll just, I know you're like, really? But um, it's the same idea, that you become like what you behold. Become like what you behold. That's why a lot of us in here, we behold a lot of other things but God. But I just want to remind you that you're the essence of humanity, your very reason for existing, is simple. It's to know God, to make him known, to worship God, and to take who God is and to reflect that back into the world. So that means we need to be militant against what, what steals our worship. You're a worshiper. You are. You are going to worship something in your life. You are. But are you going to worship what you're meant to worship? Are you going to do what you're created to do? That's to know God and make him known. And by the, because Jesus is who Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit now operates inside of us, we can actually do it. You can actually be a godly person. Isn't that crazy? That you can grow from one degree of glory to the next degree to the next degree, and that happens not by trying hard, although there is effort that's involved, but it primarily happens by looking up, by going, this is who God is. This is me studying Jesus, understanding what he does, understanding what he's like. And as that begins to bear in my head, it goes from my head and it sinks down and lands on my soul and transforms me into the image of God. So I want to bring that down here just for a minute and, and just say a couple of, of closing things here. Um, this sure affects how we view others, doesn't it? Like everybody to some degree is in the image of God. Everybody is. Even the most vile, unsaved person, to some degree, is in the image of God. Then there are very sanctified saints that are 
that are walking with God, that are knowing God, that are, they're in a greater, to a greater degree in the image of God. But to some degree, everybody's in the image of God. So if you're demeaning to somebody, if you're gossiping about somebody, if you're, if, even if the person is mean to you, even, that person is, in fact, in the image of God. So it changes our view, how we view other people. And it sure changes our view on evangelism, right? Because, well, I mean, just what if, I don't know how many people are in here, but what if all of us were beholding the glory of God regularly? We took it, we took it out of here and into our workplaces and our neighborhoods, and we were loving God and worshiping God and communing with God, and the character of who God is transforms our lives, and everybody who's around us sees that inside of us, and then you talk about it, because watch this, you always talk about what you're beholding, don't you? No clear example of this is when cowboy season's here. No clear example. Guarantee you someone's going to come to church with a cowboy jersey on. I'm going to look at them like they're funny. They're going to look at me like, why are you looking at me like I'm funny? And I'm going to look at them like, you should know that. <laughs> yeah, because you always talk about what, you be, what you're beholding. You always do. So it's not that we're just transformed into God's image and then we, we don't talk about it. We always talk about what we worship. I'll give you an example. I, I had lunch with a guy this week. Um, I mean, we talked about Jesus a lot for about an hour. It was, all, it was really refreshing. But you could just tell, you could just get the sense that this, this gentleman had a genuine love for God. He was beholding God. He, he was the object of, of what he was beholding in life. And, and he was also talking about how he was doing, talking with guys at his barber shop about Jesus, how he loved sharing the gospel with people. And there was nothing inside of his voice that made it sound like he had to do it or someone was making him do it. He just, he was beholding God, worshiping God. And as he was, he was being transformed in his image and he was talking about it. Yeah. The other thing about the image, just the bearing image in general in evangelism, is God himself is the ultimate example of a missionary, isn't he? I mean, he's in heaven with Jesus and sends Jesus to earth to accomplish a mission. That's the, that's the clearest picture of mission right there. Jesus came from heaven to, uh, to us to do something, to start a new kingdom, to be on mission. And now we're called to be God's image bearers, so we, we bear that out in life. Yeah. And finally, it sure affects how we view Jesus. That Jesus is central to this for two reasons. He's the reason why we're here, and he's also the only way that we move forward. He's everything. Jesus stands central in all this because it's his work on the cross that makes this possible, and it's us ongoingly looking to Jesus, beholding Jesus, that makes future sanctification, future image-bearing possible. So Jesus is the means of how we got here, and he's the means by which we continue. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 6, I'll just read it. For God said, or 3, 4, 6, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the means of us getting here is Jesus, and the, our future hope lies in Jesus, our ability to behold Jesus by the power of his Spirit, knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus, and then letting that bear fruit in our life, land on our soul, and transform our life. Yeah. So Jesus is essential. You want to know the character of God? Study Jesus. Want to know the holiness of God? Study Jesus. Want to know the the wrath of God? Study Jesus. You want to know the forgiveness of God? Study Jesus. Want to know the glory of God? Study Jesus. Study Jesus all the way to the wretched cross. He's central to this. That's why the gospel stands uniquely from everything else in the world. 
Well, I think you've earned your nap today. Or you, if you're napping, it's time to go to lunch. So let me pray for us. We'll call it a day. Father, thank you for, um, for saving me when I was nine. I didn't understand a lot of this, and I still struggle with understanding who you are and your character and your gospel, and it's multifaceted. And I, I just thank you that it's simple enough for, for a child to get saved and believe. I just, I remember in my, in my head remnants of, of just memories laying in bed and knowing that I'm a sinner, knowing that, I'm, that I'm, something's wrong, and knowing that you're the solution. So I thank you that the gospel is simple enough for, for a child like me to get saved and for children to get saved, but, but multifaceted and glorious enough for us to spend our lives dedicated towards and looking towards and studying and thinking about and to not even really scratch the surface. And so God, I pray that you would make clear some of these issues if they're still foggy in our brains. I, I know that law and gospel and law and spirit is, is hard to understand sometimes and how that fleshes itself out can be difficult. So I just, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be helpful as we take this and, and move forward in our lives. And we didn't really talk a whole lot about how to behold you, but I pray that you give each of us wisdom and how that, what that means for life, what that looks like in our lives. And God, I pray that we'd be good image bearers of who you are, that you'd piece the, take the pieces and and put them back together in our lives so that we can bear your image, so that we can, we can do what we're created to do, and that's to reflect you, to know you, to make you known, to be exposed to you, and to express you. And so I pray for your people who are here, God, that it would be, this is challenging to them, and that this is hope-giving to them, that they're encouraged by your word, that they're stirred up to want to know you better and want to walk with you in a deeper and more real sort of way. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.